at the other side, you make this polished thing that everyone thinks was perfect and behind the scenes, but it's all just chaos. And I think if you know it's chaos, you'll be less hard on yourself. And if you're less hard on yourself, then you can actually be creative because you're not just beating yourself up the whole time. Hello, and welcome to On Assignment, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of award-winning journalism here at Columbia Journalism School. My name is Abby Wright. I run the prizes program here, and I'm joined by my colleague, Lisa Cohen, director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. How's it going? It's going well. We are going to bring a very interesting conversation today to our listeners, a conversation you had with director Alexandria Bomback another one of our 2019 DuPont winners, who recently screened her film On Her Shoulders at the Journalism School. The DuPont judges called it riveting and a revelation. What it is is an achingly beautiful film about a very young Yazidi woman named Nadia Murad, who some of you may have heard of, although not many people know what the Yazidi are. They're a small minority religious group that ISIS has brutally persecuted over the last several years, and this film really paints a portrait not just of Nadia, but also of the Yazidi people. So she herself has a really traumatic backstory, right? She was held in captivity by ISIS and suffered terrible abuse before she managed to escape. Now today, she's made it her life's work to tell the world about her experience in the hopes that it would bring attention to the plight of the Yazidis. And because of her advocacy since the film was made, she's actually won a Nobel Peace Prize last year. So it's really a film about, you know, one of the most compelling advocates that the world has seen in a while, right? She's just 23 years old. My gosh. It also raises some important questions about the painful price that trauma survivors pay who, like Nadia, end up retelling their story over and over again in the public spotlight. And it asks if the price is really worth it. And so Alexandria sort of takes viewers behind the scenes of what goes into that kind of advocacy, right? That's right. And it's like a, it's a verite film. She, she doesn't talk to her while it's going on. They don't speak the same language. It's really just kind of living her life with her. So just as a note, Nadia's fellow advocate and friend who travels and works with her during this film is another Yazidi whose name is Murad Ishmael. And you'll hear his name mentioned a few times. Okay, so let's get to the conversation. This is an edited conversation, as always, with On Her Shoulders director, Alexandria Bombeck. I wanted to start just by asking you if you can tell us a little bit about what's going on with Nadia these days. Where is she? How is she doing? A little update. An update? Well, to be honest, I don't keep up with Nadia very much because after she won the Nobel Peace Prize, it's just like her life has gone in a completely different trajectory. Um, So, you know, and she has so many people wanting her time, so I kind of um, just, you know, it's my grace to her to leave her alone. (laughs) But I know that they're doing a lot of work, they're getting a lot of donations, and so her work is still pretty full on now. I know you're not an expert on this, but can you talk a little bit about the current status of what's happening with Yazidi? The Yazidis, um, about I've heard numbers as high as 30% have gone back to the Sinjar region, but as you've seen, it's very devastated, and so there's um, no infrastructure, the security, it's really 
dangerous. And um, ISIS was planting mines as they were leaving. And so there's a huge demining process that needs to happen. And a lot of Nadia's work is trying to get heads of state to understand that this needs to be a priority of theirs, as well as I think a lot of her money from the um, Nobel Peace Prize is going to a hospital. So it's like rebuilding this homeland is a, is a big part of her work. But also, there's still women in captivity. There's a lot of people who have been displaced internally, but also um, Yazidis in, in Greece and in Germany and all over the world. So there are endless things to be worked on. And this is definitely, as you probably are left with, this is not a triumph story. This is definitely an ongoing and never-ending struggle for the Yazidis. And actually, when you say it's not a triumph story, that was one of the things I wondered about is that did you have a sense towards the end or throughout the film that she has become disillusioned with her ability to to make change and affect people's opinions and move people? Uh, it's, it's hard not to be cynical about it. Yeah, I think she's not necessarily disillusioned with change, but disillusioned to the, for the path to change. I think um, she really saw how people were using her for her story and sensationalizing her story for their own agenda. Um, and I think at first the film was completely out of order of how I filmed it, and I, it wasn't working. And then it took me a while to realize, oh, this film needs to be from when I first met her to the last day I left her in an order because she actually, it, it was, you know, I was in the trees, I couldn't see the woods kind of situation, and I needed to step back and see, oh, she really did change from the time I was with her. But um, to be fair, I was with her for three months, or in a three-month period of time um, in 2016, and so that was, you know, two or three years ago now, so. What was one of the first iterations of it that you then realized you had to change? Well, um, the film was commissioned as a short film, and so I met Nadia, and it became very obvious after meeting her that this needed to be a uh, feature-length film. And so I tried to talk to a production company about it, but they were very adamant about being short. They had budgeted for a short. Um, And so I filmed as much as I possibly could. And then getting into the edit, you know, three months later, I had six weeks to make a short, and I just didn't make one. I made a feature instead. In six weeks? Yes. Um, if, so the first rough cut was in six weeks, and it's in another language. <laughs> so it was very, very intense. Um, but that feature ended up getting into a lot of festivals, so the company was convinced. And then I took it out of all those festivals, didn't premiere it, because your premiere is like your one chance. You know, you only get one premiere. And I needed to do more work with the translations, and that's such a huge part of my work and process and the, the dignity that I give to my s- subjects and the respect I give to them as I put a lot of work into translations, trying to bring out the nuance in them. And for Nadia specifically, you know, it's incredible. She'll be, she'll be translated in the moment when she's giving speeches or testimonies, and that's an incredible process. People are hearing her and speaking English into everybody's ears or whatever language they're speaking, and that's so impressive, but uh, of course there's mistakes and a, a nuance is lost, and this was the first time that we really actually got to hear or read and feel Nadia speak and what she had to say, so I wanted to put extra effort into that, and so I went away for 
um, three months and moved to a small island in Greece to work with a translator who was there working at a refugee hotspot because Samos is very close to Turkey, obviously, mm -hmm. and there's um, a lot of refugees still coming over to those islands. And so I worked with him and really, you know, did a lot of work on the um, translations and then um, edited the film more into getting into Sundance in 2018. So when you talk about how you had, you couldn't see the forest for the trees and you had this other cut that was very, very different? Oh yeah, so the, it's really odd. I think this happens to me every time, so I need to pay attention for the next film, is that my first cut is actually the most like my last cut. <laughs> huh. um, it, like the, the, the instincts of your first cut, especially if you have to make it very quickly, which both of my features I had to do um, for odd reasons, um, it, like instincts are so important. And I've really learned to hold very close and, and precious these instinct moments, like the first time you're seeing footage or the first time you're understanding what somebody says and like how it hits you, if something makes you laugh and like, that, that first notion of something, because the more and more things are repeated, obviously, the more crazy you go. So, But also you get inured to the feeling, because you've yes, seen it so many times. Exactly. Yeah. About every feature I make is probably like 25 different renditions of the film. I ended up putting all these talking heads in, and the film, I made it out of order. And I was just, I think there's always a time when you're making a film about social issues that you kind of overdo it with the information because you need to know where you've gone too far and then you need to pull back and really understand what the bigger picture is here and that you don't need people to know every detail of the genocide. Or, and with this film in particular, I didn't want to tell that story. Um, I just I didn't want to redo what Nadia was asking us not to do. And I wanted to make a point of, you know, why this film needed to be different than what everything else was already being done. So. Um, so I made a really, really bad film, but this is like the natural progression that a lot of filmmakers go through. You know, it's like you really are in love with your project, you hate it, and then you think you're the worst person ever on the planet. I call it the you suck phase. The you suck phase. It's real. It's real. <laughs> and it's like you feel like a total piece of trash, like dirt, and then you're like, I don't want to go on with my life, let alone this film. And then you like kind of crawl out of that and you try and finish and then they take it away from you. And so that's like the progression every time. And how long did that take? Um, the edit in total? Yeah. Um, it, the edit in total is probably eight or nine months. Okay. And you, so you shot for three months and then you edited for eight or nine months and was there an overlap? Were you shooting and editing or was all one and then all the other? All one and then all the other. I've been really lucky that um, my last film too was shot in about three and a half, four months and then editing for a year. I think inherently because these films needed to be more of like a, this is a slice of this time and for us to reflect on something bigger and it's not I, I you know I feel so bad when I hear filmmakers are making these films for like 10 years and they're like waiting for the person to get out of jail or to have the baby or whatever and or I'm to just raise like, the money yeah but it's like if you're taking longer the longer you take the more money it takes too so I've been really lucky that the productions have been short that I know how to edit and so I edit my own films and so there's a bit of a cost difference there um, at least initially, I do pay myself, but and so I, I've been really lucky. I'm, I always like tell people I'm really worried the next film I make is going to be a ten-year film. It'll be you like my it. curse. <laughs> um, so how did you learn all of these things? How did you learn shooting? How did you learn editing? In the streets. Can you tell us more about that? <laughs> 
Um, I didn't go to film school or journalism school. I actually went to a small liberal arts school in Colorado where I went because it was good snowboarding. And I actually had amazing professors at Fort Lewis College. And so I was a really good student and got a great education there. But it wasn't film school. I had been filming since I was a, a kid. You know, I'd, I'd been filming with a, like a, and tapes and stuff like that since I was 13 years old, but never had any sort of notion that that should lead to filmmaking. I think I just grew up in... Um, the kind of environment or class or climate that really discouraged uh, dreams. <laughs> um, it was more of a like you'll be lucky if you're working at Subway um, kind of situation. So um, didn't really even occur to me, even when I was doing video production in 2009, it probably didn't occur to me till, yeah, like 2011 that I should make a film. It was more like video production because I graduated right at the like most terrifying time of the recession. So there was no jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think I might be the only person who's actually thankful for the recession because I think if there would have been jobs, I would be like some marketing business person or something like that right now because that was what I would have just done. And so in the editing, what kind of editing, what, what do you use when you edit? I use Premiere. And what camera? For my last two features, I used DSLRs because of the the situation of the film. I mean, they're very intimate films. It would, I've tried to shoot with bigger cameras in these kinds of situations, and it just holds you back. It was literally the physical size of the camera, and also getting into the UN or when I was in Afghanistan, like getting into different government buildings or even into a supermarket. If they see a small camera and they know it's a photo camera, they know there's not a, a bomb in it. Um, so it was more like the bigger cameras were getting held up. And even in going into important buildings with Nadia, it was the same kind of thing. It was like took longer for bigger cameras to get through. So a DSLR was just the way to go. And there's such workhorse cameras that it's fast. And I needed to be incredibly fast with both of these films because they, nobody was waiting for me. Like if the like I would get to a taxi, then they would all get in. And if I was too late, the taxi was gone. It was like oh. I I got it. Okay, I'll get the next one. Where are you going? Um, so it was just I had to be very fast. There was no time to put, you know, a camera away in a Pelican case or something. It was very quick. You were sort of you were a fly on the wall for three months, in and out all the very, time. Very very large fly. Yeah, but um, no, you, they definitely noted, knew I was there. <laughs> how did how did the discussion go about you know this is what I want to do and what can I do and what can I do. Who were you talking to about what, Nadia. what kind of access? Yeah, Nadia for sure, and Nadia. and Murad because we were filming him. But um, Nadia for sure. This film was unique because at the time that we uh, started filming them, and and through that year, they were saying yes to absolutely every interview and testimony and thing that they could do. So it was a very desperate time just to get the story out, and they were, you know, Nadia was going 100 miles an hour from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. every day. It was just relentless, relentless. It was scary how fast they were having to move and felt that they had to move. And, you know, I say felt because, it, it you know, so much of this came out of just sheer survivor's guilt and, and pain that, you know, Nadia felt um, guilty that she had escaped. You know, that's a common thing that happens is people have this survivor's guilt. And so when I had a conversation with them about what it was I wanted to do because she was so media savvy already that I wanted to make sure she, uh, that she knew I wasn't going to be like most journalists who are coming in interviewing her and making her tell her whole story 
filming a few shots of her going up and down stairs and then saying goodbye. I was going to be around the whole time and maybe not interview her till the end, which I didn't interview her till the end. Nadia was like, yeah, sure, what's the big deal? Yeah, fine. Um, and which was fascinating, but also I came to realize very, very sad and made me really sick to my stomach that you know anyone could have just have walked into her life and taken another piece of her, which I saw people do over and over and over again. Did you ever feel like that's what you were doing? I felt, it, this was a really horrible film to make. This was, uh, every single day I felt physically ill making this film, and I wanted, that's why you see it made in the way it is, because I wanted to recognize that, to recognize that this is such an odd thing that we do, especially to women from the Middle East, put them on these pedestals and often just you know pat our own selves on the back for giving them awards or accolades and all this pageantry, because we think that's helping and you know especially trying to be more reflective on our responsibility as storytellers why are we doing this to survivors what do we think is our responsibility what like what what good do we actually think it was you know most of the interviews that I heard her go through they would say thank you so much for doing this this story is important to tell and I'm like is it if it's already been told 30 times, when does her telling her story actually, you know, when does it actually do something? And she gets celebrated as being resilient and strong and all these words we like to, you know, assign to especially women survivors. But, you know, for me, what I saw was patience. What I saw was grace of putting up with everyone who, you know, flashed these things in her face as if that's what she wanted. And um, and just took and took and took and took without ever giving back. And some big part of that was about her survivor's guilt, right? I mean, she was doing that. Yeah, but part. we're but we're complicit in this. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Very complicit. And you were having your own guilt. So the two of you were guilty, you know, in guilt together a little One bit. One big guilt trip. And what were you telling yourself about why you were doing it that helped you to keep going? I didn't want anybody else to do it. Hmm. Um, I knew if I would have put the camera down, they just would have hired somebody else. And, uh, who knows how they would have handled it. And that worked for you? That was, or did you still torment yourself? Did you still feel conflicted about doing it? Oh yeah, I feel I feel conflicted today. Like I, I mean, I feel very proud of what we did. I know Nadia is very proud of this film, um, but I, I think. In a larger picture, I feel conflicted about our role as storytellers. As I'm a documentary filmmaker, I'm not a journalist. I feel very strong about that distinction because it's important to educate an audience that there is a difference. But yeah, this film has changed how I tell stories and how I approach stories and how I see stories being told. And I'm really grateful for that. And I was already thinking about it making a film in Afghanistan. A lot of uh, Frame by Frame was about um, you know, challenging our perspectives of, of this place that is an unknown known for so many people. So I want to go back because you said, and this was going to be my, one of my questions was, do you, Don't do it. do you consider yourself a journalist? Oh. No, no. I just want to understand <laughs> when you say there's a difference between a documentary filmmaker and like a journalist. Like a pit of wolves in here. <laughs> what, what is the difference? Um, uh, I, I, okay, sometimes I answer this really well and sometimes I don't. Um, I think these are all 
like if we could make a Venn diagram, you know, there's for a documentary filmmaker, we have like, I think the main circles would probably be um, activist, artist, and uh, journalist, I think, are like the three things. But in the middle there, we have documentary filmmakers. And I think there's only positive that can come from differentiating because audiences will then understand who's making what story. Not all documentaries are true. Not all journalism is true. And there's different there's a difference between fact and truth. You know, there are fiction films that are true, you know, that speak to a truth. And for my films, I want to speak to a truth. It's factual. That is what happened, but in a larger sense I'm trying to speak to a larger truth. Um, I'm very tired. I just went on a huge um, <laughs> workshop retreat, so none of this makes sense. I'm so sorry. No, I think it's something that journalism students here who are making documentary films are grappling with, you know, um, it, and the lines are blurred. And yeah, and there can be journalism in documentary. That you can have an investigative journalism documentary, but you, you know, there's also documentaries that are based on complete magical realism and right. you know so it's not documentary isn't one thing and neither is journalism and they don't always have to be holding hands with each other you know it can be a mixture you talked a little bit just now about the things that you learned from this process and how it's changed the way you're going to do your job and the, th the way that you're going to do your work, make your work. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm only making rom-coms from here on out. Uh -huh. um, or, no. or at least something like a dog show or something. Like yeah, that. I, I am making a film next about the Indigo Girls, actually, which is like such a, a relief, because I, I just made so many heavy films in a row, I think I need a little bit of reprieve, and they've definitely you know saved my life before as a teenager, so I'm really so excited to go back into that healing space and make a fun film. Um, but yeah, I think on I'll come back to the sad stuff, don't worry. But what have you learned? Like you say, it's yeah. made you change the way you would approach the work or the kinds of questions you would ask? Yeah, I think it's just about responsibility and I don't think I could give uh, a lot of specifics, but it's just about, we need to be aware that there is sensationalism in journalism and documentary that does happen. And I think I started to really be more aware of the documentary industry and you know you go into these meetings and they're like what do you have do you do you happen to have any true crime we would love some true crime and I'm like oh would you like that I don't know it's just this kind of this weird landscape right now for what both of these industries are kind of looking for right and I think there's room to step back and think how weird that is but more than that it's just how we're approaching subjects it's how we're talking about things it's what simplified stories are we feeding into like what is the point of us having these careers and these this life work and this passion are we just trying to amplify whatever story everyone else is telling or are we trying to like get our audience to think more critically about something. I know that you feel very strongly, and it was clear from the film, that people were treating her badly, and some of those people were journalists. And so what was what were the journalists that were treating her badly doing? Like, what was bad? And were any of them doing it right? And if so, how? Okay, well, I think it's important to point out that for me, this was the film where the point of it, in a big way, was kind of doing the opposite of what I think the question is you're asking, is there are no good guys and there are no bad guys. Okay. I think 
for me, and with most of my films, I'm trying to separate those two and put more gray space and put the audience in the gray space. There is room for us to be critical of this and to think, okay, did you need to ask that question that many times? Let's like take a step back and did this story need to go in that direction? How many questions did you ask Nadia about the future of disease or what can be done and how much did you only focus on her rapes? Right. I think there's room for criticism here. I don't think it was bad guy, good guy, or someone did something good or bad. It's like, it's also an exploration of good intentions. And I think good intentions aren't good enough when it comes to handling things like this. Okay. Let me ask you about the interview that you did with her, because I was surprised to find out that you did one interview. So you followed her around. Yeah. And then you did one interview at the very end of the three months? With yeah, I wouldn't put it through more than one interview, yeah. And and um, can you describe it a little? Because you had an enterotron. Such a sweet, sweet word, enterotron. Explain what that is, because I don't know. Enterotron. Yeah. Um, it was a, it's a camera apparatus invented by Errol Morris. When the person is looking into this screen they're seeing you and you see them but you're in a a separate room so that you can they can basically look directly into the screen and as you saw Nadia was looking at you it was important for me to use this I I felt I wanted to use this pretty immediately because I'd seen so many interviews be done with Nadia and there needed to be a perspective shift quite literally where she wasn't in two-thirds of the frame looking off camera. She was looking directly at you. It's so beautiful. And you made these choices that were like, you know, you'd go to her on camera for an interview portion and she wouldn't speak for a while. She'd look at the camera. Talk yeah, about that a little bit. I, I think I, I really, uh, for this film in particular, I think pacing was really important um, just for our own breath. I think there's a lot of things coming at you that are pretty emotional. Um, and speaking of the, you know, being... Um, too close to see the forest, or I keep messing up that metaphor. Um, Can't see the forest for the trees, because I only know this because I've been guilty of it a lot. There you go, can't see the forest for the trees. But um, in the edit, um, sometimes I'm I'm pretty adamant about doing rough cut screenings um, with lots of different types of people, whether it be small groups of filmmakers, individual editing consultants, or like a large group of muggles. Um, it's all very important to me. But I found that pacing was just so critical for how much time we were allowing people to recover from things and to think about things. And, and, and um, silence was a really big part of this film. Our sound designer, designer Lawrence Everson, who's like an incredible talent, often says that most of the, the films he works on, he's adding things. But this film was about what, what all we could take away. Um, and so, yeah, there, it just fit the film. And you study her. You study her face while you're waiting for her to speak, and that's interesting. You learn. It feels like you're getting to know her. Yes. Do you prepare for interviews? Yeah. <laughs> How do you prepare? For, that's okay, okay. Let me ask that again. Sorry. How do you prepare for interviews? Um, I, I don't know. I think about the questions I need to ask, and then I... Do you write them down? I write them down. 
Yeah, you're gonna have to work because it's a, it's a, it's fuzzy for me. So you're gonna yeah. have to ask me specific questions. I didn't mean to suggest that it didn't look like you hadn't prepared for the no, no, I was no. more thinking. I'm that more you embarrassed were such that I don't have like an actual process <laughs> because every time it's different and very messy and terrifying, and I want to throw up before every time I interview someone. So it's like it's it's not. I don't feel like I can offer a lot of. Um, Why do you want to throw up? I mean, seriously, it's what is terrifying. It? I only have one shot. Nadia is gonna not want to do this for very long. I think we got her for maybe a half an hour, and and you know, it it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying to to make sure that I would get everything I needed, and I got a lot wrong, and and I had to work with that. I had to work with what I had. There were a lot of things that I thought would be very important to this film that she didn't either want to talk about or the translation didn't make sense because the guy told me she said something and then she hadn't. I think people see the interview and how it went and like what I picked and they thought it was perfect, but it was a hot mess. And I think that's a really good lesson is like most of this is a very big hot mess. Um, <laughs> but I think what's important to take away from that is, oh, wait, it's always messy for everybody and at the other side, you make this polished thing that everyone thinks was perfect and behind the scenes, but it's all just chaos. And I think if you know it's chaos, you'll be less hard on yourself. So, and if you're less hard on yourself, then you can actually be creative because you're not just beating yourself up the whole time. I think that's really helpful. I think people don't, oh, when you watch a finished <laughs> film, you think, oh, I feel like every I really choice there. You something. No, no, no. And we're like, going to let me off the hook with a whole, how do I do interviews thing. <laughs> when you look at a finished film, everything looks like it's, oh, everything's sequential, everything's perfect, everything went the way it was supposed to go. And yeah. tied it up with the a sausage bow. behind it is just so much messier. So Nadia, clearly, you know, she's, I mean, the media presence in her life is to an extreme level. And then as a documentarian, you walk in, you're sort of there much more than like normal other journalists are. So how did you sort of balance that to make sure you didn't lose out on, on your access because she's the survivor of trauma and at any point, you know, someone like her can just be like, okay, just put her hands up and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. In particular with this film, it was it was an odd thing because, you know, so many people wanted Nadia's time and attention all of the time. So I had to be very aware of that because I think the people who are doing that aren't seeing her all day having to go through this. So I was seeing her all day go through this thing. So I rarely pushed. I. It was so rare for me to push to want to film her in the evenings or her getting ready. The only time you see her getting ready, doing her hair, was the one time I was just like, Nadia, please, can I please? And she's like, fine. And I had, as long as you see is as long as I had. I had like five seconds. She's like, okay, get out. I'm like, okay, no problem, no problem, no problem. So she um, would tell you to leave. She'd be done. She would tell me to leave. And she was more um, fed up at the end. I mean, we, to, to, be, to be clear, it wasn't all bad. Um, Nadia, I think she was really not, uh, happy to have women around. It was myself and my producer, Haley. Um, and Haley's really young and likes girly stuff. And Nadia loves girly stuff. And I was like trying and they could tell I was faking it. And then she was just exhausted. And I could see that. And I don't think she was ever upset with me, but it was like she was exhausted. And so I had to kind of read that because there was also things where even people would want me to film more and I would say, you know, I think I'm gonna, I don't need to film the meal, like I'm good. I did not have very many hours of footage what's for what's normal for a feature. I really used everything I had. 
were you at any point like freaking out that I'm not I'm not getting enough yes. because like yeah freaking how out do you, the like, whole time calm yourself down? <laughs> how do I calm myself down well I am I'm working on that I think I was very very stressed out which made me very sad because I didn't want to seem so stressed out around Nadia but I was I remember I ran and slid, slid in place like cut my jeans open to get the shot of her and the two women and Murad uh, on the other side talking about the soldiers dancing or playing instruments and she like looked down and was like <laughs> did that and like laughed at me so I think sometimes my frazzledness made her laugh but at other times I felt really bad because I wish I could have had it more together but honestly it was emotional to be making this film because I just it was a huge crushing responsibility and also I, I was very uncomfortable with what I was seeing other storytellers do and what other politicians and everybody was making her do and the tryout of the UN it was all very the first time I was kind of getting this behind-the-scenes look at advocacy I was very grossed out by all of it so it felt very stressful because I didn't want to just make a Malala doc you know I wanted this to be different I was very scared they were gonna take it away from me it was lots of fear at the time I and, you didn't, and you didn't want to make it worse if that was probably an overriding thing like I don't want to make I don't want to add to whatever she's going through yeah but inevitably you're gonna have a footprint with it. every single documentary there is no fly in the wall you are a f- f- huge elephant on a stool I don't know what you are but you're not a fly on a wall I remember I stayed after the UNGA because Nadia um, I just didn't want to leave them. And it was very odd that I had this flight like right after and I just didn't get on the plane. My producer was pissed. And I was like, well, I'll just buy my own ticket home. And she was like screaming and I just hung up on her. Because um, I just wanted to be around Nadia and she wanted me to be around. And I just put the camera away and I just wanted to be around her as a human for a second. And I think because I had been with her through all those things, she felt a bit of like, you know, comfort around me because I had seen so much of what they had gone through. You know, it was such an interesting question about whether or not she needs some kind of professional help. You know, she said, I went to see a psychologist once and I felt too guilty because other people weren't getting any help. That felt like an ongoing question for me. But I wondered about you. I wondered about whether or not it was taking a real toll on you emotionally. And did that scare you at all? Yeah, definitely. I I definitely need therapy. (laughs) If anyone would like to donate it, that'd be great. Thank you. But were you having moments of, you know, oh my God. I mean, I watched so many hours of ISIS footage. Yeah, I I mean, there's secondhand post-traumatic stress from all this stuff, for sure. Yeah, it's a a real issue. And it's actually very serious. I hate to joke about it, but it it is serious. And documentary filmmakers, a lot of us are telling really, really heavy stories that everyone likes to celebrate. And then, you know, they're like, what are you making next? And you're like, Jesus. So there's never really a time for us to process this stuff, and we're often talking about, you know, financial sustainability, and which is very critical for documentary films. But I, you know, if this, if On Her Shoulders would have been my first film, I would no longer be making films because I wouldn't know there was actually a healthy process, with, and that was making a film in Afghanistan, you know. So I mean, uh, Indigo Girls. Yeah, Indigo Girls, rom coms. But you know, if this would have been my first film, I wouldn't have made another film because it was that horrible. It was that difficult. And I don't know any sane person who would want to do that more than once. So um, if we're going to respect this craft, if we're going to invest in storytelling and respect what these films are bringing out into the world, we need to hold sacred the health, mental health of our storytellers. It's a big focus of mine. And the second question is the fact that you shoot and edit your film. Like, what do you think are the advantages of working like that versus what do you think are like the pitfalls or dangers? 
because of the nature of the films I'm making are very intimate films. I mean, it's hard to say around other directors who don't edit their own films. I think directors can work with editors and make incredible films, but um, for me and my process, I feel like an editor first and foremost, and um, and so I don't know if I could hand it off. And it's not about control. It's that that's like that's how I do things. I've been editing since I was like a kid on these like com old computer programs, and so I really love telling stories in a more hands-on way. And I I that's how I learn what the story is, is editing. As I'm shooting, I'm editing while I'm shooting. I mess up a lot, but for me, I really love directing my film through a camera and, and directing my film through my hands into the edit. That doesn't mean everyone has to. It means people make great films with other editors and there's a benefit to that process. It's just, I haven't had that. And maybe I'll make a film, like maybe the Indigo Girls film will be edited by someone else and I'll really enjoy that process. I'm not precious about this, but it was important to me that someone knew Nadia. Like, I, I, I was the only one that knew her and I don't think, maybe it's my fault that I couldn't, I don't think I could do justice to explaining her to another person to then edit the film, if that makes sense. I, I've been thinking about this idea of uh, objectivity in journalism, and there always seems to be less and less of it. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, I can't speak for journalism, I don't, but I do know that there's no objectivity in documentary filmmaking at all. And we have to admit that, and I think that's a great place to start from, and a great place for an audience to understand a film, too. And I think that's where we're going to have better conversations, is this, if we know that a filmmaker made this film. Even if I only had 100 hours to make a 90-minute film, like, do the math. That's like, there's a lot of different films that could be making a 90-minute film. And I was making choices while shooting. I was making choices of what I was shooting, and, you know, there's just so many different variables that this film is me, and often... What I'll tell people is it would have been a great disservice and, and disrespectful, I think, for me to try and to, to, to depict to an audience what Nadia was feeling or to get you to put yourself in the shoes of Nadia. Nobody knows how she's feeling. Her, her whole experience is so incredibly unique, incredibly unique. There's no one else like her in the world um, for what she's specifically been through. And um, you can say that about anybody, actually. And so for me, how I approached the edit was, okay, I can't do that, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna make this film as if you were sitting in the room with her. Because that's what I was doing. These are the rooms I was in, this is how it felt to be in there. Take from it what you will. Hi there, thanks so much for being here. Um, going back to the difference between being a documentary filmmaker and a journalist. No! Oh, it's okay, you're gonna like, you'll like this question. I think one of the ways that they are also different is that being a filmmaker means you do not have a straightforward career path. And it means taking risk because nobody's gonna give you permission to go make films or hire you specifically to do that. If you wanna make films, you have to go make films, which is what you've done. So I was wondering if you could talk about how you navigated taking that first step and believing in yourself as an artist and also the financial risk of going out on a limb to make something on your own and what kind of, how you've navigated that in a career path? Good question. Yeah, well it was recession, right? So, and 
and I kind of put all my money into one endeavor of living in this Airstream. This is a very long story. I'm going to try to make it very short. Um, into this one production that I thought I was going to do. It all fell through. I lost all the money. The veggie diesel truck I had fell apart. Um, and I had nothing. And I had to sell that truck for scraps. And I basically had a thousand bucks in my pocket and went to a film festival. And it was my first film festival. And I was telling my weird and wild story of living in an Airstream to somebody and living in Walmart parking lots and on like you know and this sounds like a film exactly so this guy who was the lights were going down for a film and this guy that was in the doorway and we were close and I'm whispering to my friend he was like shh just make a film about it and I was like oh and so I was like white fairy dusted like hit on the head by this white man and given permission to make films and I was just I think it was because I had absolutely nothing that everything seemed like I wasn't risking much <laughs> and every time I did something like I I sold everything to to make the Airstream thing work and then I sold everything again and um, to to go to Afghanistan, I, I had, I sold my truck that pulled the airstream. I like, I went really low um, to go to Afghanistan and make a film there. And it was like every time I took this risk, it paid off hugely. And so I just kind of figured out, okay, the bigger the risk, the more reward. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's true. I think we have this feeling of not being able to have permission to do something, but also just like our understanding of of what could happen to us is kind of strange it's like we think you know you're not going to be homeless like you, like you you're fine yeah and someone's going to back you up you're going to have some couch to sleep on like you're going to be okay like um you know so i think you can take a huge huge risk and you like i've never seen that fail for anybody if your heart is in it and you take a huge risk people are going to catch you because they're going to be excited by you doing this thing um so i think that's worked for me so far and i hope it keeps working if that makes sense Thank you so much Thank for you talking so much about for your beautiful, beautiful film. I really appreciate it. it. Thank you. Thank you to Alexandria Bomback for coming up to Columbia and screening your film. Yes, and um, it may not win a DuPont Award, but I am certainly looking forward to watching the next project about the Indigo Girls. So coming up next, we have another in our series of 2019 DuPont winners, we will be bringing you a conversation with the filmmakers from a film called This Is Home, which is a different kind of refugee story. Refugees, immigration, it just continues to be one of the biggest stories of our time. Director Alexandra Shiva will talk about her film, which follows several refugee families from Syria who arrived in Baltimore, and then they only have eight months of support to kind of get their lives together. And the filmmaker spent that time documenting what it takes to make a new home. Looking forward to that. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. Our producer is J School grad Sarah Wyman. With the support of our lovely and talented coordinator in DuPont, Lauren Marigildo Santos, and additional support from our DuPont fellows, Christina Shaman and Sarah Jenks. Our sound engineer was Ariana Sullivan. Thanks to her. And our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter and visit us at www.onassignmentpodcast.com. Until next time. <laughs>